And I went to the barber to get my usual uh, monthly haircut and uh, a dose of uh, gossip. And he said, you know, Peter, from what I hear, neither the House nor the Senate has any intention of enacting a redistricting plan this time. Oh, really? Huh. From the Minnesota Reformer, this is Reformer Radio. I'm Max Nestorak. The Minnesota legislature hasn't successfully redrawn legislative districts on time without intervention by the courts in 140 years. The reason? A geographic conflict as old as statehood. In a nutshell, the problem is a movement of political control from rural to urban areas was resisted by rural interests. To get new maps drawn, it's taken private citizens suing the state. 50 years ago, the courts started drawing their own maps, which lawmakers have become accustomed to. In redistricting, there's often conflicts between members over who's going to get this territory. So there is some incentive for a leader to just stay out of that and say, well, we'll let the courts do it. This week, why the courts have been forced to take over redistricting from the legislature and what it costs to do it this way. It's Friday, September 17th. I have spent a lot of my spare time over the last uh, four or five decades drawing redistricting plans just for fun. Peter Watson is really into redistricting. Not necessarily sharing them with any members of the legislature, but just in in the privacy of my room here, uh, putting together plans and thinking about it. He's been a fixture of the state capitol for decades. He was Senate counsel for 40 years and then general counsel for Governor Mark Dayton. Over those decades, he worked on redistricting issues, which is also kind of a family business. His dad was involved in a lawsuit over redistricting in the 1950s. Uh, They got a federal court to say for the first time anywhere in the country, federal courts have jurisdiction over these issues of unequal population and unequal representation. So as Minnesota and states across the country undertake redrawing their legislative and congressional boundaries, Peter Watson seemed like the person to call. He's also personally invested now, having filed a lawsuit this year to get the courts to redraw the legislative boundaries once the legislature reliably fails to do so this year. And he knows the topic really well. He can rattle off the entire history of redistricting in Minnesota like a Viking superfan reciting all the playoff losses. Our founders were very um, idealistic people. And they thought it would be a wonderful thing if the legislature could redraw the boundaries of congressional and legislative districts after each census. And the legislature did really well in the 1860s and 70s and up through 1881 in having a new plan after each of those censuses. But uh, after the 1881 redistricting plan, they kind of fell behind. At first, the legislature finished redistricting a few years late. And then they just stopped doing it altogether for decades. Well, I guess they exhausted themselves in the effort to uh, redistrict. And so they didn't do it again until 1959. Uh, And why was that? Well, the main reason, I think, why they fell behind in the 1880s and 90s and 1900s and then uh, abandoned it after that is because of the shift of population from... Uh, rural areas and the southeast corner of the state toward more urban areas up in the middle of the state. You wouldn't want to provide too many votes to those people up in Minneapolis and St. Paul, 
let's keep them down here in Houston County where they belong. The tension between rural and urban lawmakers hit a high mark nationwide after the 1920 census, which showed for the first time that more people lived in urban areas than rural areas. These demographic shifts invited a backlash from congressmen from rural areas, and they were able to prevent the reapportionment of congressional seats that decade. So Congress didn't bother to uh, do a new apportionment in the 20s. They waited until, I think it was 1929, uh, 31, 1931, after the 1930 census. But state legislatures continued not to draw new boundaries, except when, as in Minnesota, they gained or lost a congressional seat. Minnesota lost its 10th seat in 1930 census. The effect of this was that rural citizens had an oversized voice in Congress and the legislature. The state legislature did manage to agree to new boundaries the following year, in 1931, but the governor vetoed it. And there was a fight over whether the governor had the authority to do that. It went all the way up to the Supreme Court of the United States, who said, yes, the governor does have that veto authority. But it was uh, too late to draw a new district for the 1932 election, so they had all nine congressional seats up for election at large. And this being a time when there were three major parties, Republicans, Democrats, and farmer laborites, there were 27 candidates on the ballot after the primary, 27 candidates for those nine seats. And guess who won those seats? Minneapolis had three members of Congress. So the legislature thought better of that and uh, eventually did adopt a a single district plan for those nine congressional districts. But they didn't do another congressional plan until we lost the ninth seats, went down to eighth in the 1960s. In a nutshell, the problem is a movement of political control from rural to urban areas was resisted by rural interests. The state legislative boundaries remained unchanged, however, and so urban citizens had to fight back. In 1958, Twin Cities area residents filed a lawsuit in federal court, of which Watson's dad was involved, alleging the 1913 legislative boundaries were unconstitutional because the districts were so unequally populated. Uh, They got a federal court to say for the first time anywhere in the country, federal courts have jurisdiction over these issues of unequal population and unequal representation. The legislature will be shocked, shocked to hear that uh, the largest uh, Senate district has a population nine times the population of the smallest district, Senate district, and the largest House district has a population 14.7, I'd call it 15 times as large as the smallest House district. In raw figures, the smallest House district had just about 7,000 people, while the largest had 107,000 people. And so the court told the legislature, Shocked as you are to discover this, we're sure that you will take action to uh, remedy this wrong. And indeed, in the 1959 session, they did enact a bill uh, that brought those uh, population disparities down to 4 to 1 in the Senate and 7 to 1 in the House. The case that Watson's dad was involved in based its argument on the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. That argument was picked up by plaintiffs across the country, including a group of citizens in Tennessee whose case made it to the U.S. Supreme Court. In 1962, the court ruled in their favor and said legislative districts must have equal populations. Even so, 
the Minnesota legislature failed in the 1960s to redraw legislative boundaries on time. In 1971, after the next census was taken and the issue of redistricting rolled around again, people who'd been around state politics could see what was coming. A fellow who was a year ahead of me in law school named Alan Weinblatt had had the foresight in April of 71 to sue in federal court and allege that the legislature was unlikely to draw a plan given past experience. And therefore, the court should be ready to draw a plan if the legislature should fail in its constitutional duty. And to no one's surprise, they did fail. Uh, so that's why the court had to draw a plan. Now, back in those days, federal courts, three judge courts that were called upon to draw redistricting plans, thought they could do pretty much anything that they wanted to. So this three judge court said, we think it would be a good idea to reduce the size of the Minnesota legislature. The judges put forward a proposal with 35 Senate districts instead of 67. Naturally, the state Senate objected. They uh, took an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, and in very short order, the Supreme Court, in a per curiam decision that, is, that wasn't signed by any judge, but they were unanimous in saying, you can't do that. <laughs> Maybe it's a good idea. And there had been bills pending in the legislature that session, as well as previous sessions, to reduce the size of the legislature. But you can't do that. Your job is limited to solving this constitutional problem of unequal populations. So the federal judges came up with something less drastic, and the state Senate has remained with 67 seats to this day. After the next census, in 1981, Watson's friend filed his lawsuit again. Having established the pattern of needing a lawsuit, um, Alan Weinblatt in the 1980s filed another one. <laughs> I'm not sure what the date of that was, uh, whether it was March or, or January, uh, saying, in the unlikely event that the legislature should fail to do its duty, uh, the federal court should draw not only legislative but congressional plans. And unlikely as it was, uh, they again failed to do their duty. And uh, so the court had to draw the plans. And so it's been, decade after decade in Minnesota. The census takers take the census, Weinblatt files a lawsuit to get the courts to draw plans, the legislature fails to pass their own plans, and then the court's plans become enacted. Now, to the legislature's credit, they did pass a redistricting plan in 1991 that Governor Arne Carlson attempted to veto, only he missed the deadline. That invited new lawsuits, and what followed was a new fight between the federal court and state court over who had jurisdiction to redraw boundaries. This made it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which sided with the state court, and since then, it's been state courts which have redrawn Minnesota's legislative and congressional districts. That's why Minnesota's boundaries haven't changed dramatically from year to year. Lawmakers in other states like Wisconsin have used sophisticated software to draw bizarre-looking maps to help whichever party is in charge to gather more seats. But the judge-drawn maps in Minnesota have remained steady. This year, Watson expected his friend Weinblatt to file his lawsuit again, just like he did after the last census, and the one before that, and the one before that. Only he didn't. And it got to be February this year. And I went to the barber to get my usual uh, monthly haircut and uh, uh, dose of uh, gossip. And he said, you know, Peter, from what I hear, neither the House nor the Senate has any intention of enacting a redistricting plan this time. Oh, really? Huh. 
I wonder what Alan's plan is. So on the way, on my way home from the barber, I called Alan on my cell phone in the car and said, Alan, what's your strategy? Why haven't you filed yet? What I don't understand. I said, Peter, I retired from the practice of law two or three years ago. I, I can't bring that lawsuit. Well, Alan, who's going to bring the lawsuit? Peter, you are. And so Watson has picked up the mantle of becoming the citizen who files a lawsuit to ensure the courts have a redistricting plan in place when the legislature reliably fails to pass one. And just to underscore this, the courts don't automatically do this. There must be a lawsuit, and it must be filed early enough for the court to have time to do it. If the legislature does manage to pass new plans, Watson's case will be moot, of course. So how are they doing? Until the last week of the session, they had done virtually nothing. The House committee had never even met once until just a few days. It was Friday or Saturday before the Monday adjournment. They had their first meeting. The Senate committee had met twice in uh, January, the 15th and 28th or something, 29th. uh, Two meetings in January to just get background. But they hadn't hired any staff. They hadn't begun looking at data or delving into population shifts. Minnesota dodged a major political battle this time around by hanging on to its 8th congressional district by just 26 people. Still, with a divided legislature, Watson's expectations are extremely low that they'll fulfill their duty. And so I asked him if he thinks the legislature is just resigned to the fact that the courts will draw the maps for them. I did a lot of interviews of members of the legislature in 2019 and 2020 uh, trying to get their opinions on how this process ought to work. Because I had drafted at the request of some a citizens group a bill to create a redistricting commission to draw the maps. And the most frequent comment I heard from members, both of the House and the Senate, was, well, commission. Well, I I could be open to a commission. Yeah, I could be open to a commission. But really, I like my district. My district was drawn by a court. I think probably the best district in the future will be another district drawn by the court. After all, my district elected me. So I think that there is a very strong feeling uh, among the members that the courts are probably going to do a better job than they could do for themselves. There, there are other reasons why leaders would not want to be producing a map. Primarily that if you're going to be a caucus leader, you kind of have to have a majority of the members of your caucus voting for you. You don't have to have everybody, but you don't want to get anybody mad at you and in redistricting, there's often conflicts between members over who's going to get this territory. So there is some incentive for a leader to just stay out of that and say, well, we'll let the courts do it. They don't make enemies that way. One upside of having the courts draw the maps is that we haven't seen major gerrymandering like there's been in other states, particularly our neighbors in Wisconsin. For the past decade there, Democrats have gotten way more votes than the actual number of seats they've won. And so I asked Watson if a single party controls the governorship and the legislature after the next census in 2030, 
Could we end up with massive changes in our legislative boundaries? I assume that that's one of the reasons why the political parties have not tried harder over the years to come to an agreement between them and why they have not embraced more than they have this idea of a redistricting commission that would be a bipartisan, nonpartisan, balanced commission that would stay out of gerrymandering. I think they each, Republicans and Democrats, want the opportunity to really run the table. Watson's idea is to set up a bipartisan commission with equal weight given to Democrats and Republicans, like other states have done, such as Washington. If they deadlock like the legislature, then the court could serve as a fallback as usual. That raises the question, though, why not just have the courts do it? I asked Watson what is lost, if anything, by letting the courts redraw Minnesota's legislative and congressional boundaries every 10 years. What the court said in 2007 is that it is the court that suffers by being drawn into this partisan political activity. The objectivity of the court takes a hit when it is forced to get involved in politics. So it's the court that has wanted to get out of this business. This show was produced by me, Max Nesterak, and edited by Patrick Kulikin. Special thanks to Johnny Vince Evans, who composed our theme. I invite you to sign up for our newsletter with political insights, news, and analysis from around the state every weekday in your inbox. You can reach me by emailing me at max at minnesotareformer, all spelled out, dot com. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.